Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me as my guest for this episode is paranormal investigator Haley Stevens, creator of the award-winning science blog, Haley is a Ghost. Haley has been investigating paranormal mysteries for over 15 years, conducting her research using a scientific methodology to seek rational explanations for unusual happenings that people report to her. She has written for The Skeptic magazine and is also a fellow podcaster, producing episodes of the Spooktator podcast, as well as assisting with a recent BBC podcast about the Battersea Poltergeist. In the interview, we talk about some of the cases she has worked on and how her approach to paranormal investigation has developed over time. We also discuss what that has revealed to her about how people try and understand the strange mysteries that fascinate us and how that might best be done without being too sceptical or overly credulous. It was a fun and interesting chat. Enjoy! Hayley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What first got you interested in researching and investigating the paranormal? I I think I've always had an interest sort of as far back as I can remember. Um, so as a child, I remember going to the library and borrowing any books they really had on sort of local paranormal folklore and ghost stories. And when we were younger, we thought that the house that we were growing up in was haunted. And so I think just because we were having those strange experiences that sort of ignited in me. I mean, initially it was a fear, but also curiosity. Um, and that curiosity sort of grew as I got older. And obviously as you grow older, your critical thinking skills and your um, ability to think logically sort of develops. So as I got older, I was questioning things more, um, trying to learn more about what possibly could be going on. And around the same time, we got our first dial-up modem. So we were able to access the internet and sort of found um, forums and websites. This is sort of pre-Facebook and Twitter, um, back before even, I think, MySpace existed. And so we would go on to these forums where people would discuss the strange experiences they were having and so on. And so I learned more from there and I learned that there were people who investigated paranormal phenomena, actively went searching for places where there was alleged phenomena. And I think it was in 2002, there was a television show that started airing here in the UK, which was called Most Haunted. And around that time, I was um, in my teens. And so I started watching that quite avidly, at least the first few seasons And then I realised that rather than just accepting what other people were saying to be true, I should really just go out there and investigate things for myself. And yeah, so we then, I I think I put the word out um, on like a local forum and found some other people who were interested in sort of banding together and going out ghost hunting. And yeah, that's really where it started. Excellent. So what were some of the things that were happening in your house? So the house, um, we lived there from a couple of months after I was born until I was 18. And it's sort of noises and a sense of presence and things like that. Things that are very 
nondescript, just more of a sensation of maybe not being alone, that kind of feeling that somebody's watching you. Um, we always used to think it was like an old lady and they shouldn't approve of having young children running around the house being noisy. So you would sometimes get this feeling that almost like a disapproving grandparent was in the room, only there wasn't anybody. Um, we also would have a few strange things happen where light bulbs would blow up but the glass would land in places that didn't really make sense so we had a light bulb um, explode on the upstairs hallway but the glass ended up in front of the kitchen door Um, strange things like that though obviously that was a long time ago so I don't know if I'm remembering it accurately but I do remember being quite freaked out about it at the time Um, I I look back and I think it was probably more mind over matter I do think maybe we were just sort of whipping ourselves up into a bit of a frenzy and then interpreting just ordinary noises um, as being something significant or something strange. But we definitely at the time believed that it was, you know, something weird was going on. I know what you mean there. I I have a a memory from when I was a a child myself and my parents were playing uh, a board game called Buccaneer. And we were in the living room and a game piece went missing. And we looked all around the living room for it and couldn't find it. None of us had left the living room and and we found it, but it was in, right in the middle of the kitchen table. And and oh, that's always stayed with me. And I, I, I try and work out some sort of rational way that could have happened. And, and like you were just saying there, have I misremembered it? Have I retained an accurate memory of it? It can be hard to sort of, discern that can't it after time it can and although we're very good at remembering details and recalling information um, there is research that shows that even the context in which we're trying to recall a memory can influence the way that we remember it so when um, when we're talking about the paranormal or the supernatural and then we're trying to recall something in that context we tend to recall the information in a way which fits with the conversation that we're having which um, means that we sort of embellish certain parts of the memory over others um, without necessarily realizing we're doing it or doing it intentionally so it's it's very difficult to trust your own memories especially when uh, you know at the time I would have probably been a very young child um, under the age of 10 so you're talking Mm. at least two decades ago. Mm. So so when you um did start doing your own investigations what sort of approach did you take did you have an idea of what you were looking for in terms of the paranormal activity itself yeah so initially we just it was just ghost hunting really and um we sort of just copied what we were seeing on television um so when when we formed the group um I was about 18 years old so still quite young and probably for the first two or three years we would um, basically just do what you see on ghost hunting television shows Um, we always had permission to go to the places that we were going to investigate um, but we would copy sort of the equipment that we were using the way that we were um, conducting the investigations uh, the way that we were interpreting information and that kind of thing and after a few years of doing that so when I was sort of in my early 20s I sort of realised it was, wasn't was like a sudden eureka moment, but um, I sort of realised that we were going about it all the wrong way and there were explanations for a lot of the things 
that people were reporting as paranormal that just made more sense and um we had a couple of hoaxes that had happened to us or that we had uncovered and um it just kind of broadened my mind a little bit into um how the approach we were taking maybe wasn't as open-minded and as objective as I thought it was and that we may have missed information in the past on cases and that um, really I needed to adapt what I was doing to take a more rational approach, which is sort of what I've been doing ever since, really. Right, okay. And what sort of what sort of things did that involve, that, that progression to, uh, to a sort of a more still open-minded but a more sort of sceptical approach? Um, so it basically, I just, um, we just stopped using any paranormal or equipment that's marketed as ghost hunting equipment um things like emf meters and um kind of measuring you know temperatures at the beginning of the evening and then logging them throughout the day um things like that not doing electronic voice phenomena um also not using psychics or mediums seances or table tipping or anything of that sort of um that kind of you know spiritual approach um because ultimately we I basically realized that if we had to be involved for something to happen the chances are that we were making it happen um now I know some people would argue against that but I decided that by ruling that out and not using those methods it's just a way of um ruling out potential bias being brought into the investigation and Although things like EMF meters, they do have a purpose. So they aren't they aren't just made for ghost hunting. It's something obviously that gets borrowed into ghost hunting. Um, although they do have a purpose that they're designed for, um, the way they're used on ghost hunting just logically doesn't make any sense and is largely open to biased interpretation. Um, so those were some of the sort of equipment based and methodology based things that I changed but also just my general outlook on what I was aiming to do so for the first few years I would go on a case looking to find something strange and you know asking out is there anybody there make make a noise give me a sign of your presence and psychologically I was priming myself to have experiences and the other people around me to have experiences and you know as the evening would go on as the day would progress if things didn't happen then you would start looking more desperately for things that you could chalk up as potential evidence Um, it didn't mean that there was a ghost it just meant that you were interpreting things as ghosts because um, you know we were quite desperate for things to happen and it's not something we consciously do it's just something that um, we do as as humans, the way that we interpret information and seek patterns to help us make sense of incoming information. So by just changing the approach that I was taking from one where I was trying to prove that the paranormal existed or find evidence of it to one where I'm just asking questions about what's happening and what could really be going on and sort of focusing on the bigger picture, um, that kind of took my investigations and my research into a completely different direction and actually I know some people think that um, by not considering the paranormal as a major cause for phenomena that's closed-minded but actually I think it's actually more objective to not go in with the intention of trying to to find paranormal evidence 
um, I think that is actually a more closed-minded approach. Hmm. Do you think of like a general, well, I, I say problem, a, a problem with paranormal investigation is perhaps that, that at times people go into it with too much of an idea of 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 how the paranormal works and, and what is happening within a location. I think so. One thing that um, I have noticed over the years is that it doesn't really matter what location a ghost hunting team or an individual is going to, they will use the same techniques at each place and each investigation or ghost hunt. And to me, it just seems really bizarre um, because when you think about the way that people experience things which are chalked up as paranormal or or could be paranormal, um, the experiences that person A has at one location will be very different from the experience that person B has at a separate location. And yet, if you go in there as a ghost hunter, you use the same techniques in the same way. You do the same things with very different phenomena. And to me, that speaks not to the intentions in a malicious way of ghost hunters. I'm not saying that ghost hunters are purposely going in and, and using bad techniques, but I think that they're priming themselves to have experiences and they're sort of not helping themselves to be objective because if they were properly investigating the phenomena at the heart of those cases, they would tailor their investigations and the techniques they use and the questions they're asking and the things they're doing, they would tailor those to the nature of the phenomena or the the strange occurrence that's being reported. And that does happen, but it's very rarely the case. So ghost hunters will often... I mean, the majority go into locations in the dark, we'll turn the lights off, we'll use night vision camcorders, we'll use EMF meters, even if no phenomena related to EMF has been reported, we'll log the temperature, even if there haven't been temperature drops or cold spots or hot spots or whatever reported. Um, We'll not do things um, that specifically could answer the questions about the specific phenomena that has been reported and it was only when I really took a step back and stopped having an approach where I was trying to communicate with ghosts or find evidence of ghosts it was only when I stepped back and started asking bigger questions about what else could have been happening in the cases I've done in the past and how can I better focus my attention going forward that's when I started to sort of consider the bigger picture and realized that for the first few years where I'd been investigating hauntings I had just been, I had the blinkers on for most of the time and had probably missed so much that could have actually been quite beneficial. Hmm. You were talking about um, Most Haunted a little while ago and I'm just wondering, I watched that program and, and really enjoyed it for a while, but then there was a point where there was a point where I just sort of lost interest in it because the methods that they were using didn't seem to be the most effective in terms of what was, was going on. And also, even though he was proven to be making things up, once Derek Okora left, it just wasn't as fun. And I'm just wondering, <laughs> do you think the way that ghosts, the whole sort of subject of ghostly phenomena, is viewed, is hindered by its depiction in mainstream media? I mean, I think it's really a question of whether the ghost hunting sort of movement um mirrors what's on television 
or if the television shows mirror what happens in the ghost hunting movement because um there are there are a lot of people who are involved in ghost hunting who will decry most haunted and the, the u.s show ghost hunters and all the other shows that have sent, since popped up um will often say these people are doing damage to the paranormal community and these people are giving ghost hunters a bad name but when you look at most ghost hunting groups out there they're they're basically just carbon copies of the television shows there's very little which separates them from that and um i mean with most haunted um although it was considered it wasn't the first ghost hunting tv show there were certainly shows that predate it but i think it's the most popular and the one which sort of gained the most following i mean they did live shows that were broadcast live on television and you know i think it was a real um game changer um certainly in how it inspired people to start going ghost hunting themselves and um but i think they although they obviously have their own way of doing things and it's certainly sensationalized and there are certainly questions that are raised about the authenticity of of what you see on most haunted i don't feel like they just created that from scratch it certainly was inspired by ghost hunters and the things that were already happening in in sort of the ghost hunting fringe community and you can see um inspiration in most haunted for um ghost watch uh, i'm not f- i'm sure you're familiar with um ghost watch which was written by stephen volk um it was aired on the bbc as though it was a documentary when it was actually a drama and it followed a family who had a haunting in their home um, by a poltergeist called pipes it was actually banned from the bbc because it traumatized people and there was a whole sensation around it even though it was fiction and um but when you watch Ghost Watch and then you watch Most Haunted, it's almost as though the the show Most Haunted has taken inspiration from Ghost Watch in the way that they treat and about they they treat the paranormal and talk about the paranormal and the people who have paranormal experiences and how they conduct themselves on the investigations. But then when you look at Ghost Watch, Ghost Watch takes its inspiration from um sort of the the early ghost hunters so the SPR the Society for Psychical Research especially their case with the Enfield poltergeist you can see very clear parallels between that very real case and this fictional story ghost watch which is then influenced most haunted so although it's sensationalized and Yvette Fielding and the crew you know that there are questions about their behavior and the claims they make you can definitely see sort of the roots of it all the way through to very traditional ghost hunting techniques and and real life cases. Mm, definitely. As well, earlier you you mentioned that in your investigations you uncovered a couple of of hoaxes that were going on, and and one that really interested me was that it was happening at a pub in Devizes at the, the Black Swan. That's right. Yes. Um, so the first major sort of hoax that we were sort of involved in very unwillingly um was is no longer a pub but there was a pub in swindon in wiltshire and it was called the ghost train um quite funnily <laughs> um uh, it's now a private home i think um but at the time it was a pub and they claimed to have lots of activity happening there and um i think they got in touch with us and they were really keen for us to go in which really should have been 
a red flag but a lot of people who do have paranormal experiences are keen to hear from ghost hunters and paranormal researchers so really you know who knows um and we went into this location it was very busy there were lots of people in the pub and so what we tended to do if we were investigating somewhere like that is we would sort of stay out of the way until the pub closed and then we would do sort of our kind of investigation but before then we would just walk around and get a feel for the place and speak to people um and we were doing that and we were in there was a building separate from the main bar area and it was like a function room upstairs and then underneath was a storage room um and we were in the upstairs function room area just sat around just kind of I don't think we'd even really started kind of doing the whole ghost hunting thing at that point I think maybe somebody was asking out but we were just sort of sat around the room and then suddenly from the room below which is was a big sort of storage almost like a shed type thing but inside a building um, there was a loud crashing noise like smashing glass or a mirror or something so we went down the staircase from the upper floor to the lower floor went into this room and it's pitch black there's no there was no electricity in there and um, some team members were going across the room there was a, a sort of doorway on the other side so we were trying to get through that door um, somebody else was stood in the middle of the room and the rest of us were sort of stood in the doorway and the chap who was stood in the middle of the room turned his torch um, towards those of us who were stood in the doorway and promptly screamed um, because there was a figure behind the door and but it wasn't a ghost it was the landlord and he had sneaked into the building whilst we were upstairs into this room had thrown a pint glass across the room and then hidden behind the door in the hopes that we wouldn't find him but we did <laughs> we did find him and we called the whole investigation off and he was very apologetic. He just, he wanted to get on Most Haunted. Um, he said that he felt it would be really good for the business. He wanted to get on the television show and he thought that convincing us that he was haunted would be the route to that. Um, they never did get on the television show. But at that encounter did make me wonder what else we had missed in the other investigations we had done um, by, you know, just having the blinkers on and looking for ghosts. Um, the case that you mentioned at the Black Swan in Devizes, um, slightly different in that the haunting itself was um, basically quite well known. Uh, the Black Swan Hotel used to advertise itself as Wiltshire's most haunted pub and they would charge ghost hunting teams to go and spend the night there, which at the time was quite unique. It, it isn't at the time then it wasn't like it is today where most places charge you to go in and do a ghost hunt back when I was first involved in ghost hunting you very rarely had to pay to go anywhere um, you would just have to have insurance or you would have to know someone to be able to get in there you know that kind of thing um, but so we we went to the Black Swan a couple of times um, we paid I think it was like a hundred pounds for the night and had access to the whole venue and after going there a couple of times over the years, we got called by the landlady once and asked if we would go in because um, she was quite frightened by the things that were happening. And she felt quite uncomfortable being there on her own at night and just really wanted sort of our advice, I guess. So we um, we went over and as we're doing this investigation on this evening, it became very apparent that she really was scared and like more scared than maybe she had been previously um which was very strange and part way through the evening she sort of confessed to everybody that they had originally made the haunting up 
um, they'd sort of fabricated the history or at least exaggerated it um, to create these two ghosts, which are very well known locally um, to haunt the Black Swan. And they had done this um, because they realised they could make money by um, making the claim that they're Wiltshire's most haunted pub and invite people in to do overnight ghost hunts. Um, and they were even on Most Haunted at one point. And when you watch the episode, the fake history and the fake characters are all presented as the history of this venue. And um, so she was telling us that they had originally made it all up to be part of the ghost walk and to get people through the door. But now she was insisting, but things are now happening. So there was a, one ghost which they said could have been a highwayman called Ambrose. She said that he, she now saw a um, shadowy figure when she was cashing up in the morning or at night, closing up or opening up. She would see a very tall sort of shadowy figure standing at the end of the very long bar and um, would get a sense that he was there before she saw him. And then she would look down and just be overcome with like this malevolent feeling Um she couldn't go into the basement on her own. She was too frightened. Um, in Devizes, there used to be a lot of tunnels connecting all the different pubs um, because it was um, a very popular route for highwaymen um, and things like that. And um, the Black Swan actually have a portion of these tunnels still in their basement, not very much, only a few feet. So she And it was notorious that you know this place is haunted by a highwayman, so, but she was too frightened to go down there. And it was almost like she had created a ghost through her lies so she'd had so many ghost hunting teams going in there over the years who had the same sort of experiences and spoke to these same ghosts and told them all about these mal this malicious man this poor woman upstairs and um over the years it sort of just became real for her she was i guess quite suggestible i guess or i don't know it just it seemed very real to her and suddenly it was as though she was being haunted by the very ghost that she admitted that she had made up originally which is very interesting i think definitely it reminds me a lot of the philip experiment that they did in canada where they created yes. a they intentionally created a narrative for a ghost and then did i think they did a table tipping and a séance and and got some really interesting results and i mean the like you say the really interesting thing about that is that even though initially activity has been faked something then is happening and that that's maybe even more fascinating than if it was you know the spirit of a highwayman yes um i i mean personally my opinion is that um any activity that was happening was just her imagination um i, I don't think that I mean, when we were there, nothing happened. We we didn't experience anything strange um, other than her behaviour. <laughs> um, so I, I do think maybe she had just spent too many dark nights in the pub with ghost hunters who themselves maybe had overactive imaginations. I don't know. Um, I do know that the people who own it now, I don't think they claim that it's haunted. I don't think that level of activity is still happening um so i i'm yeah i mean probably it would have been interesting to investigate it more um but i do know that sort of at the end of the evening when we left we were just like let's never come here again she's taken so much money from us over the years and then just told us that she lied all those times we can't really trust what she's saying um so we we just didn't go back 
Mm, well, I, I don't blame you. The The role of a person in the story of of a haunting, of whatever it is that's haunting a place, it makes me think a lot of some of the quite well-known poltergeist cases that have um, happened all over the world, but especially in Britain. And I, I know that you um, you had some involvement in uh, a recent podcast series about the Battersea poltergeist and um, with people kind of emailing in in response to that. Yeah, so I wasn't involved in any investigation into the Batty Podcast. I basically helped Danny with replying to emails because they were inundated with emails from people. So every episode they would say, write in and let us know what you think. Tell us about, you know, your strange stories. And they would just get flooded with emails and just could not keep up. Um, And I knew Danny from a previous podcast that he did called Haunted, I joined him for an episode of that. We went to Shepton Mallet Prison together and did a ghost hunt. So he, we kind of kept in touch. And then he just asked me if I would help out because he needed someone who knew about ghosts to basically answer the emails and the questions and the suggestions that people were sending in. But it was, it was very interesting to read the emails and to see the whole kind of spectrum of responses they were getting. Um, uh, not just about the case but from people talking about their own experiences and you're talking um people reminiscing from of things that happened years and years ago um to very recent experiences um yeah it it was very eye opening for people who aren't familiar with that case would you mind just kind of going through a brief de- description of what happened uh yeah so it the story of the Battersea podcast um centers on a family in Battersea um the Hitchings family basically in South London um it sort of started off with items appearing in the house I think the first one was a key that appeared on the teenage daughter's bed and then it sort of just developed from there um it's a lesser known case in the UK um when people think of British poltergeists, they tend to think of the um, the Enfield poltergeist or if you go up to Scotland obviously the Mackenzie poltergeist um, but the Battersea poltergeist kind of focused, the case focused on Shirley Hitchings, who was the teenage daughter at the time. It was a very long haunting. It didn't just come and go. It, it, it was a significant um, time frame to this haunting. And it became a bit of a media circus at the time. Um, Shirley was sort of dragged through the papers, um, some really awful things written about her. Um, and then some people sort of became involved sort of mediums and so on who were making all sorts of bizarre claims about what was going on um and there was a ghost hunter who was involved um whose name I have completely forgotten I think it was Harold Chibbit and um when you sort of read into the case and and I mean the the Battersea podcast podcast was sensational um obviously it follows the story but it's also um got kind of a drama element to it as well and if if no if your listeners haven't listened to it, I would thoroughly recommend they do because it's very very interesting and very enjoyable um when you listen to the story you listen to his involvement and the way that he took the investigation and I think actually he probably influenced a lot of what was happening that's just a personal opinion um I wasn't there. All we really have to go on, unfortunately, is the word of Shirley Hitchens. Um, she wrote a book um, about the whole story called The Poltergeist Prince of London. Um, 
and that is where the podcast sort of they based it kind of on this book but they also speak to Shirley in the podcast and um it's absolutely fascinating but I think probably peppered a lot with probably not very accurate recollections yeah the one thing that that I found from listening to it you're right it's absolutely fascinating but it was it was the living who were sort of I felt like they were influencing what was happening and not in a not in a duplicitous way, but I felt like they were like the living people who were in the house and who were involved were sort of vital to what was going on, like how how it was sort of both how it was portrayed and and the sort of the true nature of of the phenomenon. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's a really important point because actually, when it does come to paranormal phenomena, it's very rare that the things people will claim to experience and the things that people claim have happened very rarely exist outside of the realm of people so you know they tend to be very people-centered um even things which are caught on camera maybe cctv in an empty room where there are no people still rely on a person to interpret it as paranormal so i i think you will always have unfortunately when it comes to uh, spooky things and and supernatural i think you will always have sort of personal beliefs and biases will always influence um the way that things are spoken about and interpreted um and you i mean if you look at different cultures around the world things that um maybe are experienced the same way may be interpreted in different ways um and but also at the same time there are things which cross across cultures um so the idea of hitchhiking ghosts for example you can find examples of that all around the world um but i think it probably says personally i think it says more about us than it does about the paranormal yeah i i mean i i guess as well in the west um the the fact that we use the term terms like paranormal and supernatural means that this body of culture is sort of separate from the rest of of culture it's something that's not it's not encouraged to talk about so it's given that yeah though I think it is becoming more um I think people are more open to talking about paranormal now I know that you I mean you see these stories quite often in the media where they say that a recent opinion poll found that I don't know, like up to 50% of people now believe in ghosts, which is more than in previous years. But I think what's probably happening is that it's just becoming more acceptable to talk about those sorts of beliefs rather than more people suddenly believing. I think people are more willing and open about talking about the paranormal, which is a really good thing because it gives us more information about people's experiences. And if people feel less ashamed or judged for coming forward and talking about their strange experiences then as people who research those experiences we can get more information about things that are happening so going back to the Batsy Poltergeist case when Shirley wrote her book and when they did the podcast a lot of the emails that came in were very accusatory and suggesting all the family were tricking people or there was you know like a, a hidden motive or an agenda um and I do think that if we're not careful and we we think the worst of people automatically when they make paranormal claims and we just say, oh, it's all a load of nonsense or they're, they're trying to swindle people out of money or something, we can shut, make people 
sort of not feel comfortable about coming forward and speaking about their strange experiences. So we'll never really have the chance to try and understand what's going on. So I think we have to take the right tone um, in, in how we sort of interpret things. So for a while, I was involved sort of in the sceptic movement in the UK. And I've kind of ventured away from that a lot because I found it was, although it's good to be sceptical and, and you know, when you've got an open mind, you should be sceptical and you should um, you should definitely sort of review information and evidence and claims through a sceptical lens. I, f- I feel that um, scepticism as a movement um it's just not helpful at all and actually probably does more harm than good. Mm. I wonder how helpful the question, do you believe in ghosts, is. Um, I wonder if it's better just to ask, are you interested in ghosts? I mean, I, yeah. whenever when I talk to people, when, when I meet someone new or, and I'm having a conversation and I, I, I mention like the podcast, they, they'll often ask me that question first, like, do you believe in ghosts? And my yes. general, my, 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 sorry. No, I was just going to say, I get the same thing and I don't believe in ghosts. And so when I tell people, um, I research ghosts um, and then they say, do you, oh, do you believe in ghosts? And I say, no, they look at me as though I've got two heads. They can't get their head <laughs> around that somebody who doesn't believe in ghosts would be interested in ghosts as though only people who believe would ever have a reason to be interested. Yeah, I mean, I it's more it's not so much I believe, it's more that I'm interested in what ghostly phenomenon is because I have no idea what it is but sort of investigating it is really interesting yeah and actually when you do um investigate paranormal or alleged paranormal phenomena in an objective manner and by that I mean one which doesn't just go oh it must be ghosts let's find evidence of ghosts when you do go in and properly question things you can actually learn a lot about life and the world um they're all I I kind of refer to it sometimes as having to be a a jack of all trades because you need to know a little bit about this and a little bit about that and a little bit so like knowing about air pressure and how a chimney works (laughs) so if a door opens in a room could it be the chimney and a little bit about carbon monoxide poisoning and you need to know a little bit about um flooding and what that does to a building and psychology and um sort of psychotherapy and and all sorts you just need to borrow bits of information from all these different fields so that when you are investigating a case you can ask the correct question could it be this could it be this um and actually by doing that you you learn so much about other things and um i i at the moment i'm studying i'm coming towards uh, the end of my studies with the open university towards um a psychology degree and I don't think I ever would have started that if I hadn't gotten involved in paranormal research and then become more interested in sort of the psychology of why people experience things and interpret them in certain ways. So that's it's interesting in how that sort of influenced that part of my life. Um, but I that's why I investigate, even though I don't necessarily believe in ghosts. I'm not out to debunk ghosts or to tell people they're stupid for not believing or for believing in ghosts I mean um I'm just uh, you know I'm just very curious and actually it's been a very eye-opening experience Mm, absolutely I mean with some of the poltergeist cases I think it it's fascinating because it it speaks to sort of the untapped potential of the human mind I think what can happen I mean not just well obviously not just in in Battersea but the the Enfield poltergeist is one of the most famous cases and some of the things that happened there were 
very odd. Yeah, they were. Um, I always think it's a shame um, when people talk about the Enfield case because I think um, obviously Guy Lyon played fair and, and Morris Gross, they did the best job they could. Um, but I think there probably were some flaws in their investigation, um, hmm. like allowing Janet to be in the room on her own, for example, things like that. Um and you, you kind of wish that you could go back and go, no, do this and record this and it could have you thought of this. But obviously we weren't there. So we it's difficult to, it's not fair to judge now really. But um, I think had different techniques been used on those investigations, we may have learned more about the case. And unfortunately there will always be mysteries. Um, the fireplace, for example, wrenching itself or coming off of the wall in a way that bent the metal is very strange if it happened as it said it happened um and yeah there are there are certainly questions um that remain unanswered there mm. um and uh, jeff the mongoose on the isle of man as well that's that's one of my favorites that's uh, a very unique i think it counts as a poltergeist <laughs> yeah i think so some people say it's it's more cryptozoology but no i think um sort of the talking and the communicate yeah i would say a poltergeist i interviewed uh, christopher joseph a little while back because he wrote a book all about it and yeah and that's again the the human story of that case is fascinating and you can you can read through you and something that i like about poltergeist cases is that if you sort of read through the history of them you can sort of do a bit of your own detective work and again it's not about disproving it but you can see the sort of the the human characters, how they might influence what was going on. And I, the, I felt with Jeff the Mongoose, that was very much the case. But then there was also some just some some bonkers stuff because it involved um, a talking mongoose. <laughs> exactly. I think it's very unique in in that respect. So you, you mentioned the Mackenzie poltergeist. Um, and I know that's something that you've written about on your blog. Can you tell us more yes. about that? Yes. Um, so when I was younger, um, I was terrified of the Mackenzie poltergeist. So the books that I would borrow from the library um, would talk about the most famous ghosts in the UK and in the world and so on. And the Mackenzie poltergeist was always in those lists. Um, and it always just sounded so terrifying, this ghost up in Edinburgh that attacked people. And it was just so matter of fact that, oh, yeah, the Mackenzie poltergeist punches people and scratches them. And so I was always just mind blown that oh my god this is terrifying why aren't we doing something about this um the idea that that would just be allowed to happen um and then as I grew older I was you know always interested and then um I've visited Edinburgh a number of times over the years I've got friends um who live up there um and they're Edinburgh Skeptic Society um a really lovely bunch of people who I've spoken for a number of times so I've actually visited Greyfriars Kirkyard where the poltergeist is said to haunt and I've gone up to the the tomb or the gates and been like, come on then, punch me. I'm here to be punched and nothing ever happens. Um, so I say that means the ghost isn't real, but obviously other people would say, well, it just doesn't perform on demand. Um, but I've always been very disappointed because I felt that the one way I would know for sure if ghosts existed was if I went and got punched by the Mackenzie Poltergeist. So then that's <laughs> not become a reality when I'm older is disappointing um but then a few years ago I 
I just um I was listening to an episode of the Monster Talk podcast um by Dr. Karen Stolls now and Blake Smith and they were interviewing somebody who was a tour guide who so there is a, a tour company who are the only company to have access to the mausoleum um where the poltergeist is said to haunt. And so they have the keys and they're the only ones who can go in there. And so I found that really interesting. And then as I was listening to the, the podcast, there were just certain things that were being said that just raised tiny little flag, red flags in my mind. And it bugged me enough that I couldn't just let it go. And so I started sort of investigating the story a bit more. And there was um, somebody else who listened to the podcast who did the same and um we kind of work together so she's based um up in scotland i'm down here in the southwest of england so although we were you know geographically very far apart um we kind of put our heads together online and we're digging into information i remember spending a whole day in the library kind of going through archives and she did the same up in edinburgh and we just found all these inconsistencies in the origin story the poltergeist and the claims that were being made um and the things that were being said and the people who were involved and it just became really apparent that rather than being this very active poltergeist um it is very much just a sort of a tourist trap that um the story the origin story has sort of been spun into this big old story about this malevolent poltergeist and actually the the Mackenzie poltergeist when you look into the history of it um Mackenzie himself was actually not a very nice person he did some really terrible things to protesters up in Edinburgh um the the way that they were treated and they were kept in what's known as the Covenanters prison which is this outside prison area um because they rebelled against the king um it was a really horrible gruesome story and the focus of these tours, instead of being about this very real story that happened in this very real place, they've sort of replaced that story with this one where the poltergeist is now almost like the victim because a homeless man broke into his tomb and disturbed his sleep and now he's angry and he attacks people. And it's almost like this fictional crime of his where he attacks people has become the focus rather than this very real historic awful thing that happened um which i thought is a real shame yeah i mean i do you think that i i mean i think the the main way that in the west we consume our ghost stories is through you know movies and tv shows and books and comics and things like that do you think that kind of encourages this sort of thing to to happen um i'm not sure it's it's interesting because there are some ghost tours that happen in the UK where they're able to, they walk a very careful line between not revising history, but also celebrating it and teaching it um, as it is. Um, for example, here in Wiltshire, Longleat House, they do, or they used to do ghost tours every October as part of the Halloween festival. And there is a costumed ghost actually maybe I shouldn't say that but that you know there was uh, a ghost running around the house whilst you're on the tour um but also you learn about the house and, and its history and that then made us in particular we wanted to go back and learn more on a normal tour um and in Brighton um just off the top of my head there is a historic house there called Preston Manor and they do ghost events there too they've got the original seance room that would have been there 
um, during Victorian times is a beautiful room, very oppressive atmosphere in there. And they managed to do it in a way that teaches people about that time and about the house during that time, but whilst also maybe piquing their interest with that sort of paranormal element too. Um, so I think it, I think although there is a particular way that we kind of consume horror and paranormal fiction in this country I think though there is a way that um, we can make sure it doesn't become historic revisionism when we then sort of celebrate it in real life yeah I agree um, I think it is good when in a story or in a, in a, in a work of fiction like through tv or film the the ghosts sort of complement they're, they're a part of a, a bigger story there's a great animated series on Netflix called City of Ghosts it's about a bunch of kids who are sort of ghost hunters. But generally what all they'll do is that when they go somewhere, they'll eventually sort of coax the ghost into appearing. And the ghosts always look like clouds. So it's very sort of, you know, it's very sweet. It's a kid show basically, but, you know, <laughs> but adults can, adults can enjoy it too. Um, and they just interview the ghost and the ghost sort of tells them about who they are and, and, and a bit of the history of the area where they live. And I found that was it was just a very gentle way of of sort of looking at at what ghosts are like they're sort of they're they're an element of their environment and uh, and it, and it, and it really worked for me because they weren't they weren't angry they were sort of just a bit shy and 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 more than happy to talk to people when they were asked questions when and when you think about how how ghosts are talked to in a lot of um, ghost hunting shows i imagine they quite like it if people just wanted to have a bit of a chat <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, that makes me think of there's that sort of infamous Halloween episode of Most Haunted where they're on Pendle Hill up in Lancashire and um, Yvette Fielding is screaming at the witches, uh, calling them names and all sorts of horrendous things are happening and being said. And actually, when you look into the real history, the witches probably never went or the the people persecuted as witches, I should say, never went on Pendle Hill. <laughs> they probably would never have gone onto that hill. Um, and yet that's where the most haunted crew were. Um, but I mean, my mum came from that area of Lancashire and I went up a few years ago and visited friends up there who took me around all the, the local historic places. And actually, when you go and visit these places, they've all got these incredible histories and probably a lot of them have ghost stories associated with them. And there is just a, a much better way, I think, of sort of exploring those stories within the context of the very real history of them. And I think it's a, a lot more enriching when you do it that way, because, you know, I, I don't think I've been doing sort of ghost research since I was 18 and I'm in my mid-30s now I've never ever come across a place that's alleged to be haunted where I haven't felt comfortable just sitting there even with the lights off um, and you get a very real sense especially the places that are very old uh, you get a very real almost tangible sense of the history you can feel it um, almost if, and anyone who has done ghost hunting in old places will know what I mean it's it's almost like a heaviness but not in a horrible way um and when you consider the histories of places and the people who were in them in that way I think I think you can learn a lot more about it than by doing the whole Yvette Fielding Mackenzie Poltergeist thing it's um I don't know I don't know if that kind of sensationalist approach is almost a little bit American perhaps a bit Zach Baggins I, I don't know 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, because I mean, it, it, I mean, I guess in Ghostbusters they they shot at them, but they weren't they weren't shouting at them. <laughs> and yeah. you know, so yeah, I, I I guess maybe that that is where it, that sort of point where where that happened. I, and but yeah, I mean, I I I agree. I I tend to find graveyards pretty peaceful places. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you. You you mentioned there that you you live in in Wiltshire and I imagine Wiltshire is a place that's got plenty of um, of weirdness going on outside of ghosts. So we with places like Stonehenge and and Avebury and I, I know that there was a a while ago there was something called the Warminster thing. I mean, what's 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 Wiltshire like in general as a place for this kind of thing? Wiltshire. It's weird. It's weird. It's very strange. We've got all the white horses. Um... Yeah, we've got Clay Hill. Um, we've got crop circles, obviously. Um, so regularly a thing that I didn't even know that other places didn't really have them until I was an adult. It was just very like, oh, there's a crop circle. Very matter of fact growing up. Um, so I, I currently live in Bradford-on-Avon um, and I grew up in a village not far away. Um, so very, very close to the county town of Wiltshire. Um And then, yes, you've got Avebury, which is not very far away. And by the way, spoiler alert, if you're ever coming to Wiltshire and you can only visit one, I would recommend Avebury over Stonehenge any day. Um, There's a very famous haunted pub in the middle of Avebury called the Red Lion, um, a very gruesome ghost story connected to it, um, where a woman allegedly was caught cheating by her husband who was away at war he came back and found that she'd been cheating and he threw her down the well um and the well still exists and it's now covered in glass and you can eat your dinner on it which is a bit weird but there we go <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. the, the warminster thing though um yes there was a ufo flap here um warminster's not that far away from me actually um and my mum, because my mum was always the one, she was always interested in the paranormal. And I think I sort of inherited her interest. Um, she, whenever we would drive near or through Warminster, she would turn to me and be like, oh, Hayley, this is where all the UFOs are seen. Which she thought was brilliant. But as a child, I thought it was terrifying. And I used to shield my eyes so I couldn't see any UFO because I thought if, if I can't see them, they can't see me. Sound logic. Um but yes, thousands of people in sort of the sixties would descend on Warminster to do sky watches because um there were a series of sightings there. Um when you kind of read into it, it's very likely that it was sort of kind of exaggerated and whipped up by um a journalist at the time who very much wanted to believe. But it it kind of persists to this day. People still do sky watches over in Warminster, though there is now an MOD base there um and the military are very active sort of around Warminster and Salisbury and on Salisbury Plain which is very close by um but yes Wiltshire definitely has a reputation for weirdness and there's no shortage of it um I think every pub has a ghost every (laughs) shop has a ghost um I'd say probably the strangest place that I've ever investigated where stuff happened that I to this day can't explain is in the county town of Trowbridge. It's the shopping centre there, which is called the Shire Shopping Centre. Absolutely bizarre stuff that if I think about it too much, it starts to, I just can't get my head around some of the things that happened. Um, 
and yeah so yeah I think people actually refer to Wiltshire as weird Wiltshire because there is just so much odd stuff here Wow, could could we just get a, a a sneaky peek of what happens at this shopping centre in Trowbridge? <laughs> yeah, so um, I used to work in a shop there as a teenager, and in the shop we um, it was a bakery shop, and um, just in that shop alone, we would be working, and our aprons would come undone as though somebody had pulled them open from behind us. Um, we would hear our names being called by a child when there was no child out the back of the shop. Um, and then there would be, I guess, what people would call poltergeist activity, um, sort of whole shelves full of things would come crashing down. I actually witnessed that once um, whilst working in the shop and it was very strange. I have it was almost as though the stuff exploded off the shelf and it's I you kind of question whether you experienced it properly and if you're remembering it properly but that myself and somebody that I was working with who I used to go to school with actually we were both stood in the same area of the shop and this shelf full of sort of like utensils like tongs and spatulas and stuff just came crashing off almost like it had exploded off of the top shelf of the storage unit and we I remember both of us looking at each other and going I didn't touch that um which was quite funny but also quite frightening um we were serving in the shop there were two of us working one day both of us serving customers in the shop and the woman that was being served by my customer suddenly just went um being served by my colleague sorry suddenly went very pale and my colleague asked if she was okay and she said I've just seen a woman walk through the back of your shop and go through that wall um into the opticians next door so we avoided the back of the shop for the rest of the day um and then we got talking to other staff from other shops because we all like the back area of the stores where you would load and unload goods and stuff it was all sort of connected so you kind of would just get talking to other people and there were stories coming out of other shops as well about weird things that they were experiencing um there was a fashion store a few doors down um and they'd had this really weird incident where um they were in the store late one night doing a stock count and then the staff went to leave. They looked through the security, you know, you get like a peephole. Uh, they looked through the peephole on the back door into the loading bay to make sure it was safe to go out. And they could see a man stood there in their loading bay. Um, so they called the security office and said to the security guards on duty, we're about to leave the store after a stock take. It's dark outside, but we can see there's a man and he won't, like, we're asking him on the intercom, what are you doing? He's not responding. And the security guard was like, oh, well, he's gone. Uh, he's not on the camera now. And the woman who was a manager of the store at the time was on the phone. She was like, I'm looking out of the peephole right now and I can see him. He's still there. And the security guard's looking at the CCTV apparently and saying, I can't see anybody outside your and your back entrance of your store. I don't. There's nobody there. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that was certainly freaky. Um and so we just got talking to the security guards as well. And they were just saying they had all of these stories that they are things they'd experienced, things that other people in other shops had experienced. And um, around that time, I had started the ghost hunting team. And I was like, hey, can we come and do some ghost hunting? And we did. And um, all sorts of weird stuff was, would happen. Some of it, I think I could probably explain now, but there were certainly things um, like noises like we would hear what sounded like somebody whistling at us and then they would be next to you and then the next minute the whistle would be on the other side of the building and next to somebody else almost like it was moving around 
Um, and there was one incident where myself and another person were walking down the free fair of the um, shopping centre towards a shop. And as we approached it, there was this huge bang on the window as though somebody had run at the shop window from the inside and smacked their hands on the glass. And we thought that there was somebody in the shop messing around. And we were like, really angry because we're like how dare somebody be pranking us but when we looked there was nobody in the shop you could see um into the shop there was nobody in there um very yeah there were lots of little things little strange things that just kind of I think that's probably why I maintain an open mind because over the years I've had a few experiences that I can't explain though I think it's important to maintain that just because I can't explain them doesn't mean they're unexplained. Um, and I know that frustrates a lot of people because some of the things that I've experienced and when I talk about them, people are like, that's a ghost. Why can't you just accept that's a ghost? But I, I'm not willing to sort of jump to that conclusion because I don't see any evidence to support the idea that that's a ghost. I'm just happy to say I can't explain it. But then somebody else in the same position may have known exactly what had caused it right then and there you know so I kind of I I don't believe but I've got a very open mind because of all the weird things that I've experienced over the years oh cool so was it was it a new build shopping center or was it sort of converted old buildings um so it was a new build but it was built on the site that used to be a castle um very very old sort of Norman settlement um so when they actually built the shopping center they excavated the grounds and they found all the remains of the the old sort of castle buildings including uh, a bit of a burial ground um Uh-oh. but also yes <laughs> um which you know um but also some of the buildings that are how that now house parts of the shopping center were also part of the old wool mills so Wiltshire particularly this part of Wiltshire made a lot of money back in the day through the woolen industry and the textiles industry so a lot of the for example one of the cafes is basically where the entrance to the old mill buildings were and above the shopping center where the public can't go they've got large storage rooms huge these huge rooms which would have housed the old mill equipment. And we used to go up there when we were on these ghost hunts and nothing really ever happened up there. But again, it's that feeling that this is a very old place. You know, you can kind of tell that there's a lot of history there. Absolutely. Well, Hayley, this has been a really interesting talk. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. If people want to find out more about yourself and your blog, how best do they do that? Um, so you can visit my blog at hayleyisaghost.co.uk and that's H-A-Y-L-E-Y is a ghost. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hayley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Haley's research is really interesting and I think that she does a great job of applying not only a rational mindset but also a healthy amount of open-mindedness in her investigations. Science and its methodology is often presented in popular culture as being antagonistic towards the paranormal but when applied in the right spirit, no pun intended, it can still lead to some remarkable conclusions. That's all for now. Please consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. 
You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It would be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.